Everyone is staying safe and healthy, and I want to thank Scott for the opportunity to share with the audience an aspect of the AP profession when it was in its infancy. I also want to thank my good friend and colleague, Dr. Melissa Bittner, for all her help reviewing the questions and overseeing the technical aspects of the podcast. So we're going to explore with Jeffrey uh, Broadhead uh, his impact and how he helped legitimize the APA profession. And I think we're going to have a very interesting and insightful podcast today. And during this conversation uh, with Jeff, I I really can't think of anyone who has done more to help uh, legitimize the profession, especially when uh, APA, you know, the profession was in its infancy. At that time, believe it or not, some questioned if adapted physical activity was a recognized profession with an actual body of knowledge. And so a good deal of the credit should go to Dr. Broadhead. As you know, he started and was the first editor of Adapted Physical Activity Quarterly, or APAQ. However, as you're going to learn in this podcast, especially in the first part, Dr. Broadhead's career was more than developing uh, the journal. In part one of the podcast, we're going to explore a range of topics with Jeff. We will discuss his early professional development, both in Great Britain and then when he came to the United States in the late 60s, and he earned both his master's and PhD under Dr. Lawrence Rarick, who many consider um, the APA profession's greatest researcher. We're also going to discuss his years at uh, Louisiana State University in the late 70s and early 80s. He was responsible for starting AP certification in Louisiana. So I believe all these experiences helped to prepare him for the challenges he would face as the architect and founding editor of APAQ, which over time grew to be the flagship journal in our profession and with an international following. But we'll look at the journal in the second part of the podcast, and we'll explore a number of topics, and many young professionals will find it interesting because we're going to talk in the second part with with Jeff about uh, his research and publishing in general and some advice that he has for, for young professionals. But before we get started, um, I just want to share a few things about about Jeff. And, you know, Dr. Broadhead's published over 150 articles. Many are classic publications that have helped to shape the profession. Um, He's been asked to be a guest or visiting professor at many universities, and he's received a number of honors and awards for his contribution to the profession. I'm just going to name a few. He's... um, Shape fellow member of the you know the research consortium. He received the Hollis Fate Scholarship Award for his distinguished scholarship. That's uh, through the consortium. Uh, I think you know I can't speak for Jeff, but I, I think one award that he's probably very proud of is he received the National Advocacy Award from the Joseph uh, P. Kennedy Foundation. And since 1996, uh, he's been editor emeritus of Adapted Physical Activity Qu- Quarterly. So, Jeff, um, welcome. Thanks for coming on the podcast and to not only discuss your career, but the impact that um, APAQ has had on uh, adaptive physical activity. So let's jump in. And, and uh, Jeff, like I said, welcome. And let's discuss your early years of professional development in England and America. So you grew up in England in the 60s. You received both a physical education teaching cert- uh, certification at uh 
in England and a master's degree. And during that time, you taught in you taught PE in England. So, can you briefly share professional development you received and what was that was like, and your teaching experiences uh, in England, and yes. maybe yeah. even how that uh, helped you, you know, when you went to the United States. Okay, thank you. Well, Barry, Melissa, and uh, Scott, if he's listening, thank you very much for being part of what's new in APE. I wish it was called what's new in APA, but and it's actually a long time since I had anything to do with uh, anything new. Um, I'm going to try to be consistent in my use of terms as I've tried to be over the years. Two points I want to make. One is that often when I'm referring to work done some years ago, I probably will use person second language as we used to do. We used to talk about handicapped children, uh, but uh, uh, more, more modern uh, issues and documents, then I'll use, of course, person first uh, language. Uh, and the second one is that I will try to talk about adapted physical activity, because I think since um, the late 50s, the European literature refers to adapted physical activity. And I see APE as being part of APA, being APA in educational settings. And lastly, uh, I've developed a list of documents to which I referred, and I'll make those available for anyone who's uh, interested in following up. Jeff, so we can, uh, we'll make sure Scott puts that on the blog. So we'll, you send that to me and we'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll make sure it's, you know, goes on that blog. So it's, that'll be great. Thanks yes, for doing thanks. that. It's, it's nearly finished. So what about my early years in professional development? Well, let me ramble. I did grow up in England and it was during and after the World War II years. Early in the war, well before Pearl Harbor, our town was heavily bombed. And my parents decided that we should be evacuated. And so my mother took my brother and me some 200 miles away to a small town away from danger. Six months later, we returned to find that dad had built an air raid shelter, a shelter to shelter us from the air raids uh, that took place every night. And six months later, uh, we were there and he'd built this shelter at the foot of the garden with concrete so thick that after the war, it had to be professionally demolished. So we spent many nights in that shelter. And on leaving school, I spent 10 years completing compulsory national army service. Uh, and after completing the basic training, I served for a year and a half as a commando in Malta, Italy and Sardinia. I completed my undergraduate physical education at Loughborough College. Uh, at that time, there were uh, uh, many, many different, different types of higher education institution. And that college was a degree equivalent uh, and, and uh, it's now called Loughborough University. That was in 1961 and I, took, I taught public school uh, in public schools for four years while completing a master's degree part-time in education at the University of London. At that time, entry to teacher education was very tough. 
the higher education system in England was maddeningly selective. Perhaps less than 7% of school leavers uh, went on to university. Um, education was tough and every applicant chosen as a potential student, uh, certainly in PE, was interviewed in person, both orally and motorically. Classes were all in a fixed sequence, semester to semester and year to year, as we as students comprised an intact cohort. There was an emphasis on raw physical ability. I used to be six feet five with dark hair. Um, that was meant to be funny. Yeah. Um, sure. uh, and we had to have the ability to perform competitively at a high level and be able to demonstrate a wide range of skills and sports. And as I've said, the academic entrance requirements were painfully rigorous. Um, we all taught, or we all worked as students full time, uh, taking a, a very busy schedule. Uh, it's not easy to contrast university education in the United Kingdom and the USA. There are many ways of contrasting and, and, and points to contrast. But in the late 50s, I think it can be summarized at least in one way, saying that in the United Kingdom, the program of courses was universally lockstep in strict sequence with very few choices or options, which of course right. was fundamentally different in the USA where choice remains uh, paramount. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, my uh, first school appointment was in what in England we called a secondary school, sort of a combination junior uh, and high school, children ages 12, 12 to 18. And that first school was 30 miles from London in a new town. It was one of 10 new towns built specifically to house families from the World War II bombed, and by bombed I mean flattened areas of London. And then I moved to Bethnal Green in East London to become head of a large PE department in what was unofficially called a residue school a name and experience which probably was my baptism to work uh, with and on behalf of special needs children. A residue school was attended by those who didn't meet the academic entrance requirements of any selective secondary school. They attended what was left. I was responsible for all the physical education programming and also all sports. The students were from significantly disadvantaged background many well known to the police. Uh, and I can best summarize my wonderful and, and, and challenging experiences as I survived. At that time, yeah. um, at that time, I didn't have any contact with special education. That was in the early 60s. Most of those children attended small, ill-equipped separate schools. And I don't know the status of the P for those students. Uh, but it was unlikely to be satisfactory. So that was quite a quite a background, and you know it's interesting. Uh, I, I think when you're comparing and contrasting uh, physical education, you know I, I went to school in the uh, '60s and, and early '70s as well as an undergraduate, and I do think there was more of an emphasis on, uh, you know, you had to be 
physically skilled, you know, physical education is a little bit different than, than today. Um, also, uh, I think that's interesting. You were, your the school, you're working with that, uh, what we would today call at risk children. And so that really got you started, uh, hopefully, you know, with, with special ed. So after you, you taught for a while, what made you decide to come to the United States and, and how did you decide to study at University of Wisconsin-Madison under Dr. Rarick? Um, can you talk about that decision you made and, and that transition? What, what was it like for you to come to America? Yes, um, I think it must have been while I was attending uh, the University of London that I started to develop a desire to work in a university, in a university setting. And in the mid-60s, I was aware that graduate education in physical education was not available in the United Kingdom. And hence, it was natural to look to this country where developed graduate programs had been available for some years. I looked at cut catalogues and made phone calls, many of them to the American embassy, to establish which were the best programs in the highest ranked universities. And uh, although I did eventually apply to three universities, the University of Wisconsin-Madison always had an elevated ranking, whether it was faculty, programming, facilities, and of course the location of Madison is absolutely wonderful. I can't recall how, but I uh, owned a copy of Lawrence Rarick's textbook, uh, the first motor development textbook, and it was called Motor Development in Infancy and Childhood and published by the University Press in 1961. But I can remember being intrigued by it, and in fact, uh, read it cover to cover only a few weeks ago, and I began to search for others of his writings. I applied, but he didn't have a scholarship available. Um, but uh, one of his colleagues, Dr. Carl Stadefolk, who recently retired from Penn State University, he'd been developing a program for university students with orthopedic impairments, and he awarded me one. However, I did actually begin to work for Dr. Rarick after one semester. Um, in addition to that assistantship, I was fortunate to receive scholarships from both the United States Great Britain Fulbright Commission and also the English-speaking Union of the British Commonwealth. Everything over here was so big, the roads, the cars, the road signs, the sandwiches, the food portions, the billboards, and the university itself was huge. But everyone was friendly and helpful, and there were quite a number of foreign students who had to transition also. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, uh, picking a university, you had to look physically at catalogs, you had to make phone calls, you know, it's a, it was a little bit more challenging, especially overseas for you. So let's, let's get into, and um, a lot of our younger audience may not know the impact Dr. Rarick's had on the profession. I know the consortium has the research award named after him. But let, let's talk about your work with him, especially during the late 60s. Um, you, you know, you were receiving both your master's and your PhD there. And, you know, at the time, uh, he, he was considered, you know, one of the finest researchers in our field. He primarily motor development as well as adapted physical activity. Um, 
trying to, can you give the audience a sense of what it was like to study with him and his work ethic and maybe some of his mentoring skills and, and how he, uh, the impact he had on um, you, you know, professionally regarding his research? Yes, that's an interesting question that you're posing because when you first, um, as it were, warned me of that question, I, I couldn't answer it. Um, I'd never really thought about his work style and impact. So I have spent quite a time uh, recalling my experiences uh, in order to form an opinion. Um, Larry must have selected his graduate students very carefully. Either that or he was lucky. Because as I think of the ones that I knew, uh, they've all made a significant contribution to the adapted physical activity subdiscipline or to our parent kinesiology. Let me give you some examples. He trusted Vern Seafelt to manage a sizable portion of his 13 year long, um, 13 year longitudinal study of the growth and development of individuals with Down syndrome. He trusted Jim Widdop and me to manage his nationwide Special Olympics study. Uh, he trusted Alan Dobbins to manage his factor analysis study of the motor performance of educable mentally retarded children. And he trusted Jim McQuillan to manage his factor analysis study of the motor performance of children uh, then called trainable mentally retarded. And he encouraged me to conceive and design and write and gain federal funding to complete a nine month long school-based Hawthorne effects study. That took place in three school districts uh, that I'd visited uh, during the Special Olympics study. Um, it was just east of Houston in Texas. 481 children completed the daily program. Those were all huge programs. And I think we relished the confidence he had in us. And I don't think we let him, let him down. To work with him, we had to be highly motivated and work long hours, but I never heard or made a complaint. And my experiences revealed that in his research activity, he was a sort of big picture guy, not a nuts and bolts person. He was in his office nine to five most of the week, uh, except for handball on Thursday afternoons. Tasks had to be completed on time and with high quality, we didn't need to be told what had to be done. We knew we were self-motivated and there was no need for a big stick. He read very carefully what we wrote, especially letters that we drafted for him. I can remember for a, a, about a year and a half, I opened all his mail and answered half of it, or at least provided him with the drafts. I remember him laughing one day and looking at me. He'd laugh and sort of nod at the same time. <laughs> he said, that sounds just like me. You know, that <laughs> That's fun. great. Uh, yeah. But he read the academic papers as well, of course, and was eager to spend time discussing our efforts. Um, his, fir his first large funded project was um, what I call the Special Olympics International project and it was funded by the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation. By the way, all the projects that I've referred to uh, were done after his 50th birthday. Uh, it was in 1965 that Eunice Kennedy Shriver 
uh, one of the president, late president's sisters, invited him to design a nationwide study of the motor performance of what was then the largest category of special education school-aged children, as I said, then called educational mentally retarded. And that was so that a comparison could be made with the performance level of typically developing children. And Jim Widdop and I visited 21 states, over 400 schools, and evaluated 4,500 boys and girls. That was an amazing experience. The result, that's a long story. The results were compared to the uh, AHPR uh, physical fitness norms and were interpreted to show lower performance levels compared with those of typically developing children. And so those motor performance data helped set the stage for the upcoming Special Olympics. Um, the data were also later published by uh, AFER. But much more than yeah. the data were collected in the nationwide study. Uh, Jim sure. Widow was allowed to insert a research component of, of his own, which examined other information about the children, including their family background traits. And in part of Jim Widdop's dissertation, later developed as a Rarick Widdop Broadhead publication, it became clear that the chances for EMRs to have PE, actually in a gym or multi-purpose room, or taught by a PE teacher, was very small. And that information probably fueled the fire the Kennedys already had for PE for handicapped individuals. Um, yeah, so that was some real pioneering work. And I mean, these were large scale studies. These were, um, you know, first real organized studies looking at physical education for persons with disabilities. And, and so um, you've, you've touched on it a little bit, but I think the audience doesn't realize the impact that Special Olympics study, for example, had um, regarding, uh, you know, public law 94-142, which is now IDEA as far as justification for including PE in the law as a, as a direct service. So um, I think that's, that's an important point. Like maybe you could share a little bit about how they used a lot of that research um, when they went up to the Federal Hill to s support 94-142 and get PE as a direct service. Yes, okay. I, I can talk about the impact of his research. And of course, uh, uh, part of that is the impact on 94-142. Um, I'm not actually sure of the impact of his work today, though at the time yeah. his studies were cutting edge and landmark. Much right. of his work, much of his work doesn't appear in regular journals, but he produced detailed reports to funding agencies. The research projects which involved uh, Seafelt, Widder, Dobbins, McQuillan and me resulted in few refereed publications. It's only a few months ago that I threw away all the basic data that I uh, used. I had 132 pieces of information on 481 children. <laughs> um, much of it has uh, never been published. Um, the the Rarick Dobbins and Broadhead uh, book, that Prentice Hall publication, was very severely edited and shortened. And so it it, um, it describes two projects, uh, but neither very well or very full 
and they don't show the breadth of his research focus or mine. Mm -hmm. He was frequently sought after as a uh, speaker and consultant. And much of his research was completed at a time when most handicapped children were in intact classes with a suitable categorical label. And of course, that's not the case now. And the need for large sure. research projects uh, may not be a priority. Right. In any case, there are few opportunities to examine his work now. Um, I've got um, some of those studies, although I haven't opened them for a while. And I'm sure mm -hmm. they'll go out next Monday or Tuesday. Um, the Department of Kinesiology at the University of California, Berkeley, has a collection of his works. Uh, they were collected by his then colleague, Roberta Park, who was a sport historian. What disturbs me, uh, or, or perhaps disappoint me is a better word, is that many of the faculty and students with whom I interact uh, don't have the opportunity to, to get to know and study his work. And of course, you know, that means that uh, the impact possibly is is um, not very large right now. I, I wish I were wrong about that. My information about his the impact of his work on the establishment and thrust of PL 94142 uh, comes mostly from Larry himself. Um, the Kennedys, especially Eunice, were keen to have physical education feature prominently in any special education law. And they were influenced greatly by the published work of James Oliver and produced uh, uh, particularly that uh, article in the British Journal of Educational Psychology, I think it was 1958. And that study uh, was interpreted as demonstrating the influence of physical activity in helping to bring about improvements in non-physical parameters of the development of mentally retarded person. And I note here that the late president and his sister Eunice had a sister, Rosemary, who was severely mentally right. retarded and institutionalized. So having established a successful Special Olympics, it was natural for Eunice Shriver to retain a strong continuing interest in the curriculum content of public schools. Uh, particularly as there were so few opportunities for special education students to have daily PE actually taught by special uh, PE teachers. Some years later, uh, and I don't know when, but probably uh, late in 1974, um, Larry called, obviously elated, he phoned me in Edinburgh, Scotland, and tell me that several of his research projects and my Texas school-based Hawthorne effect study were entered into the congressional record uh, during the proceedings leading to the passing of PL 94142. Uh, that, that didn't say very much to me at the time because I, I didn't have any understanding of the legislative right. uh, organizational setup over here. But obviously he was elated and it was a big deal. And I think sure. had some had some uh, uh, impact. He, he thought that it was both the measurement of performance improvement shown in that Texas study over and above the Hawthorne effect, which was measured and did exist. Uh, and also the, right. the success of the individualized 
PE experimental programs. He thought those were powerful elements or must have been powerful elements right. the, uh, testimony given. Yeah, a couple of things. I, I think when you, you look back at, at, at that time period, there were many people who questioned if, especially uh, children with uh, intellectual disabilities, if they could even, you know, should be involved in physical education, is it safe for them, and, and so forth. So that was really important work. I, I think the other thing is uh, my group of doctoral students that came along, you know, in the uh, that are products of 94142, uh, we all you know, that was standard. We read, you know, your stuff and Rarick's, you know, uh, that, that was standard stuff. My major advisor, you know, Ernie Lang, I mean, we, th those were the articles that we read. And um, it's a shame, you know, uh, that a lot of people don't realize the impact um, that that work has had on the profession, especially um, promoting physical education. So, um, Jeff, how about maybe you could share a little bit with the audience about what Rarick was like as a person and what was he like away from the office? Because I think that's uh, uh, always important to, to, to discuss. Yes, I, I can't speak for all his students, but um, on several occasions, my family and I were invited to his house in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and later in Berkeley, California. And we got to know his daughter, Janet, and his sons, uh, David and Tom, uh, and of course, his wife, Mary Alice. And we reciprocated in Madison and in Edinburgh, Scotland. Two of my clearest memories of him uh, off campus uh, result from conference attendance. Uh, at virtually every conference we attended, major conference, about 3.30 in the afternoon, he would find me uh, of course, we were always in, in the research presentation, so that was even in a big convention, uh, not very difficult. But he would um, uh, find me and invite me to go walking. By the way, walking, it was serious walking. Uh, and we did that in San Francisco and Boston, St. Louis and Kansas City and other places. And of course, when your major professor invites you, you, you know, it's not really a question with multiple choices. <laughs> That's right. Sure. Um, so he, he was also very well known for asking terrible questions, penetrating questions at the research presentation. Right. And he encouraged me to do the same. And I'm sure he wanted to train me, actually, probably all of us, even as students. He wanted to train us in how to formulate questions, how to present them and carefully examine the answers. Uh, much later, of course, late one Friday evening, in December 1995, it was just days before he passed. Mary Alice phoned me in Ohio to ask for the names and phone numbers of his former doctoral students and to tell us of his fiercely aggressive terminal medical condition. I flew to his Berkeley home the next day. I had known him for more than 30 years. Yeah. Well, you, you know, it's interesting you bring up the point about asking penetrating questions at, at, at um, conferences and during presentations and how to formulate questions. I think, um, you know, that's really important. And I think over the years, we, especially in adaptive physical activity, maybe we need to do more of that and really challenge each other 
uh, more. And, and I think you can really, you know, grow from, from that. Um, before we move on, I just want to share a quick story that uh, interaction, I only had one interaction with Dr. Rarick, but it was really interesting. Um, my first higher ed position was at Fort Hay State in Hayes, Kansas. And uh, Dr. Eric received his undergraduate master's degree in physical education and science from there. Um, he, he just grew up like 30 miles away in this rural town called Stockton, had less than 2,000 people in the town. And, and I had an opportunity to talk with him very early in my career at a, a national Wayford conference. And he was very excited when I shared with him that I was teaching uh, AP courses and motor development courses at Fort Hay State. And he was very gracious with his time. and. And he said, hey, don't hesitate to contact me if I need anything. But w one of the things that he shared, he, he just had these real fond memories of living in Kansas. And he, and he shared his first teaching job was in this really small rural western Kansas town. And he not only taught high school PE and science, but he also coached all three sports. He drove the, he drove the school bus to all the away games. And I, I'm just sitting there <laughs> listening to this. And I, I, I couldn't help but think that wow, this is quite a journey. I mean, you know, from riding the, driving the school bus to being one of the finest researchers in our profession, it was just really uh, interesting to talk with him about his experiences, you know, growing up in, in rural Kansas. So I think, Jeff, um, you already mentioned about these large-scale studies like the ones you conducted with Dr. Rarick, um, and they don't often exist today. Um, and, and maybe some some thoughts about that. I, I think sometimes we don't look at the big picture and we, um, what are your thoughts about why we don't have as many large scale studies like we, we did back then? I know, and I don't know that I've got very much of an answer for that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm probably uh, negative and jaded at the moment, but um, APA people, I think, and kinesiology people and university people in general are more and more interested about publishing numbers of papers than tackling big issues uh, and identifying research themes and tying the bits of the theme together. Um, all that takes money and a lot of time, a lot of preparation. Sure. Um, and sometimes the, uh, the feedback one gets from writing a government report or something like that um, is, is not much. Uh, and I, I don't know now, but I think newer faculty in universities have uh, different pressures than, than I had. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I undertook research because I wanted to, uh, not because I had any uh, pressure to do that. Uh, for instance, I published, quote, enough, whether it was quality or quantity, to be awarded a full professorship at LSU uh, from being someone at the University of Edinburgh who taught 15 hours a, a week, every week, every semester, every, you know, every year, and did research mm -hmm. because I wanted to. There was there was no right. money, there was no no accolades there at all. So, um, and 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 people ask, and I've I've heard them not just ask me, but general conversations. They ask about the number of publications. How many did you publish last year? 
rather than about the nature and importance of a particular study. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, whether I'm right or not, I, I, I really don't know. Now, there well, are, I, there I, are I, Go on. I, I guess, Jeff, uh, I would say, uh, you know, since um, I asked this question, I've given this a lot of thought. And, you know, one of the things, too, I think is, uh, once you get tenure, then you should really look at some research themes and, and uh, have a, a look at the, you know, that's what tenure is about is uh, as you move from associate to full sustained research and having a research focus. And I, that's what I would say to young uh, professionals is to really um, look at some big picture things and some research themes and where do you want to go with your career. Um, I think I would say in justifying uh, in the past, you know, that uh, when in the 60s and 70s you had these intact groups, it's, uh, there's a lot more red tape. It's a lot harder, I, I think, sometimes to get into the schools maybe, uh, but, but, but you have these intact groups and we were more categorical. That's just some, some thoughts that I have. But So after you left um, Wisconsin, then you went back to higher ed in Great, you know, you went back to Great Britain, but you you were uh, at Edinburgh, Scotland for about 10 years, right? Um, maybe yeah. just real quickly, you, you sort of touched on this, that this that, that was a typical, um, there wasn't a real research focus there, but maybe you could just talk a, a little bit about your, your time there at, in Edinburgh. Right. Um, yes, I uh, obtained my PhD and, and then I fulfilled uh, what was an unwritten promise to return to the United Kingdom. Uh, a crucial feature of the Fulbright Commission scholarship is the importance of returning home and becoming an ambassador for the USA. That's, that's mm -hmm. part of it. And although a number of Fulbright scholars have stayed in this country, um, I, I, I didn't, and I, I made it clear that I wasn't going to because I felt uh, I felt willingly obligated. I remember uh, being invited to a, an interview at a, a big southern university, very prestigious one, and Larry saying, uh, the job's yours if you want it, as long as you don't screw up. Not that he ever used a word like that. Um, yeah, right. You, you know, but, but don't go don't go on interview just for the trip unless you're prepared to take the job. Um, mm -hmm. So I went back and spent 10 years teaching special ed, not physical education, at the Murray House College of Education at the University of Edinburgh. And most of my assignment was with already qualified experienced teachers who returned to the university to receive specialist physical education training. Semester one was spent teaching special ed theory. And during semester two, I traveled very frequently to each teacher's school to work or supervise them in situ. But in almost every conceivable way, Edinburgh must be one of the most wonderful cities on the planet. Yet my job, 10 years of it, was repetitive and lacked challenge. Most of my publications and conference presentations were in uh, uh, the USA. And so it was inevitable that I would return eventually. Uh, and I did so in late 1978 with a visa application. I always laugh at this, uh, that application 
uh, that somehow got stuck eventually was facilitated uh, or forced by a one-sentence Unischreiber message to the U U.S. Department of State. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I wish wow, I great. All she did was to write saying, you know, what is the state of his application? <laughs> and, was, and, you know, it was like a, a knife uh, cutting through butter. It's good to know. So uh, sure. I, I had a, a very swift courtship um, with the people at Louisiana State University. And I, I joined uh, both the School of Health, Physical Education, Recreation and Dance and the Department of Behavioral Disabilities. And apart from teaching the adapted course, I was expected to develop and teach in degree programs at bachelor's, master's and doctoral levels, develop a state APE teacher certification program and develop a research program sort of in my spare time. And of course, there were committees and other things to do as well. Sure. Um, so you mentioned very early you, um, during your time at LSU, which, was a, which had a pretty high-powered faculty at, at the time, um, your coursework that you developed became the AP certification in Louisiana, which along with California were a couple of the first states to pass specific AP certification. Now, this, this was in the late 1970s. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that 94-142 was only maybe a year or two uh, had, had passed you know, only a couple of years from then. So how about discussing the impact you, you think, um, cert, you know, the Louisiana certification had in the U.S. and both in the state and in general? Right. Uh, of course, we, you know, we often talk about 94-142, but that was 1975. And the, the law doesn't say a great deal. Uh, so we really, when we talk about the law, I think talk about the regulations. And the regulations right. were published uh, on August the 23rd, 1977. So, you know, it was just very, very shortly after that. Um, I, I, got, I, I, as I said, I got to LSU and for some reason managed to get my uh, course proposals for bachelor's, master's and doctoral level courses accepted in early February 1979, I, I, I'd just been there two or three months, and I chaired yeah. the state certification committee at the same time. And after discussing the need for an adapted uh, motor learning course, adapted motor development course, adapted um, history course, adapted sociology course, adapted exercise physiology course, and, you know, and I said, well, we, we, we don't have the literature for any of that. Uh, and at that time, of course, we, we didn't. And so I suggested to the committee that in addition to specific PE courses, which were required to um, ensure compatibility across different program requirements for individual Louisiana universities, that to add to those, the four uh, LSU bachelor's degree courses, which had been approved at the university, uh, and that became the recommendation uh, to the State Board of Education, uh, which approved them with immediate effect. And so by mid-April uh, 1979, Louisiana became the first state in the nation to have AP 
e-certification. Uh, followed some months by California, which used a legacy rationale. Uh, those who were teaching, right. those who were t at the time, those who were teaching APE were, became automatically certified. Quite a different approach from the course specific um, mm -hmm. uh, method used uh, uh, or started earlier in Louisiana. Sure. So 40 so, years later, we, we haven't got much development. Right. Yeah. And I so when you look back at that, what, what do you think, uh, you know, what advice would you give to future professionals? Uh, I mean, because that's, that's a hot topic and that, that's another topic that can be an hour long conversation, but maybe some, a couple of thoughts about that. Well, at the time and for a number of years, I, I didn't really keep up with that. Um, mm -hmm. And when I learned, and I don't know when it was, that there were so few states had adopted uh, certification, um, I was sort of shocked by it. I right. think probably I, I, I'd assumed uh, that it would go through. Uh, uh, of course, when you read the specific uh, requirements for different certifications uh, in special education law or education state law in general, uh, much of the wording is, is flexible. Um, and so uh, Louisiana that had uh, a state superintendent of special education who had worked in Washington and mirrored the state regulations on the regulations of the federal government. And therefore it was natural that rightly or wrongly, he would want uh, APE certification and he would want it by qualified physical educators uh, as well. And, and most states uh, don't do that. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think our advocacy, the, the advocacy as individuals or by professional associations has been very powerful. I think from time to time, a consortium has tried quite hard. Uh, I think the um, American Alliance shape has not tried uh, very hard uh, ever. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's, that's my opinion. Uh, I, I'm not really interested in whether they go up to the hill or not. I want to want to have some action going on um, because right. I think advocacy is an action word. Um, right. So, so we have like maybe 13 states that yeah. have some type of certification. We also have APENS, which is, you know, in some ways made an impact. But yeah, it's it's um, it's challenging and it's frustrating. APENS, I think, is very important. Uh, to the functioning of uh, APE uh, across the nation. But I don't see it as a solution to what is actually right. a state responsibility. You mm -hmm. know, only Good a few point. states, as you said, um, have got this. And yet, 50 states, uh, year one, it was only 49 states. And by the way, do you know which the state didn't apply for federal funds the first year? New Mexico. Uh, um, uh, that's that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I was yeah. there at the time when they used to talk about that, and they they didn't follow the, the law. No. 
they had no, their own uh, thing. And I, 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 I don't mean, know they followed why. the law, but they also had some state things that they did a little yes. bit differently. Well, right. You know, yet yet all the states take federal money, and yet PE, mm. regular or specially designed where needed, remains the only element of the special ed curriculum, sure. which we which we call the direct service, and it's specifically mm -hmm. mandated for all. Uh, students with disabilities uh, uh, identified um, as having uh, a, a disability of educational significance. And so I, I don't know what the situation is, but uh, uh, Melissa or one of her colleagues across the country might have some ideas about the future. Uh, but I, yeah. I get a bit jaded uh, when I think about it. Bearing in mind that the, uh, as I've indicated, the regulations to uh, Public Law 94-142 were only published in uh, 1977. Um, and, and you ask about the differences in mode performance evaluation. Um, yeah. I imagine, but I don't actually know, but that it must have been the fall of 1977 that the states applied for funds. Uh, that's my reference to uh, 49 of the 50 states. And so I think that was when the uh, questions became separate, the evaluation questions of eligibility, of placement and programming. And they were to be strictly adhered to. Um, after all, at that time, there was something called compliance monitoring. We don't uh, have that now, but I, I think um, that that's, that's something that uh, should still exist. And so I think it's the questions uh, or the separation of the questions of eligibility from placement and from programming, along with the need to separately evaluate short-term and long-term performance I think that was highly significant and it required a change in one's attitude and actions towards testing in general and the selection right. of particular tests for particular purposes. And so I think it made motor performance testing in the late 70s and 80s very different than it had been somewhat haphazard or random uh, before the, before the uh, run up to the act. Sure. It was in the mid-70s uh, mid um, when I was in Edinburgh that I became aware that there was a Bruning-Sozoretsky test of motor proficiency uh, uh, to be made available. And I became very frustrated when I could not, from Edinburgh, locate a source for purchasing a copy. Eventually, I called and spoke to Bob Bruning's who informed me that publication had been delayed. That's why I couldn't buy it. And he gave me the intended date. Um, late in the discussion, and having expressed interest in the factor structure, which I uh, wrongly assumed underpinned the formulation of the instrument, he offered me, believe it or not, the original data bank to enable uh, wow. an analysis. And though I was shocked, you can imagine I quickly said, yes, please. Eventually, three papers were published. But a, a brief summary was that of, of eight components of the test, 
five were revealed and supported by a, a variety of uh, different factor analysis that uh, I performed. And thus I was disappointed, stronger word, that in the second edition of the test, the results of his own initial project had been overlooked. There is no uh, theoretical basis for the construction, for the structure of the second edition. It's, it's very much um, a practical, teachable, teachers will like it um, instrument. Um, and that brings into question the validity of the test. Mm -hmm. So my preferred test is still the edition one of the bruning sozeritsky test. It remains for me the only substantial, suitably sophisticated test which is appropriate for formal evaluations. There are other tests, some very widely used, but none has the features which can match the multi-component characteristics of physical education as described in the federal regulations. And you know, we can't complain about physical therapists uh, usurping uh, our rightful responsibility in evaluation if we don't have or don't use sophisticated tests appropriate for the importance of the impending decisions about eligibility, placement and programming. And our professional expertise uh, requires a better. Right. Yeah, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, like 40 years later, um, we still need some really good, valid, reliable, standardized tests. So I think this will be a, a, a good place to, to end right now. And, and uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us for part one. And, and we'll hope you'll come back for part two, uh, because in the next part, Jeff, um, is, who is the founding editor of APAQ, he's going to share his thoughts about the journal. He'll also talk about the impact that the journal had on helping to legitimize um, the profession. And we're going to explore those early years of APAQ and how it grew into the official publication for AFAPA. But I think what will be of interest to higher ed professionals, Jeff's going to talk and give some insight about topics not only regarding the journal, but his uh, suggestions for publishing in, in uh, general.